This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, freedom. in America were a decade of profound change and upheaval in society, culture and politics, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War and political assassinations were to define the era. But there was another event which occurred that so few people even know about. It's a story which seems to have been forgotten by time and by history. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Stockade. The high school girls were imprisoned. Why? The 1960s were a significant era in US history. People will remember the high-profile events that dominated news bulletins during that decade. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. He stood there, alone on the stage, with one hand up in the air, and he was a perfect target. And a man ran down the aisle with a shotgun, and the ones with him were already shooting, when the shotgun was right in front of Malcolm X, and both barrels raked him. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States, was assassinated in Memphis tonight. While the deaths of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were synonymous with the civil rights movement of the 1960s, another incident had occurred which few Americans today even know about. This episode will tell that story. In the southeastern corner of the U.S., is the state of Georgia, where there is a small town called Americus. This town fought its own civil rights battle in the early 1960s. The name of the town makes it sound like a place synonymous with democracy, but it was no different to other places in the US where discrimination and segregation was written into law. For hundreds of years, slavery existed in the US, where African Americans were legally owned by their white masters. But even though slavery was legally abolished in 1865, after the end of the Civil War, laws were still passed that segregated blacks. For blacks living in the small town of Americus in the 1960s, a doctor's visit required them to use the back door instead of the front. To watch a movie at their theatre, they also had to enter at the rear. But first, they had to go past the dumpsters and wade through trash scattered on the ground. They then had to watch movies 
from the seats in the balcony. There were separate facilities for the whites and blacks, but even then, some black-designated facilities had out-of-order signs on them. Not that they were actually not working, but blacks were just discouraged to be in the areas altogether. When buying shoes, there were separate areas for blacks in the stores, but if a white person came in, they were then served while the blacks had to wait. Blacks couldn't try on clothes in the dressing rooms and weren't allowed to sit in restaurants, but had to order takeaway from a side window. When driving, whites had the right of way at intersections, and blacks had to sit in the back seat if being driven by a white person. In terms of education, black schools were not as well resourced, equipment and furniture was old, and textbooks outdated. White kids could take buses to school, but black kids had no buses and had to walk. But the young people in Americas had their own ways of striking back at the whites. At the movie theatre, they would throw popcorn from the balcony onto the whites below. Some also rebelled in other ways, such as demanding service on the white sides in stores. One girl asked for ice cream on the white side and kept insisting until finally they gave in, no doubt just wanting this nuisance of a black girl to go away. But after getting her ice cream, she then said she had changed her mind. As well as messing with them, she also really didn't want the ice cream due to the fear that they had done something to it. She knew it was a brave move, saying, quote, I was bold. My mother said I'd get beat up. She told me I never would have survived slavery days. Then when it came to exercising one's democratic right to vote, it was standard practice for blacks to be prevented from voting. So this meant they couldn't elect their own officials to help fight against discrimination. In many states, people had to pay a tax in order to vote, which poor blacks couldn't afford. Even if they could afford the tax, they had to sit complicated literacy tests before even being allowed to register to vote. But it was back in the 1950s when the civil rights movement began gaining momentum that segregation and discrimination was being challenged. Non-violent protests started increasing. There were freedom rides and sit-ins at segregated facilities, all using peaceful methods of protest. But the police responded with violence. The protesters, however, refused to fight and would simply sit and pray. Then an organisation was founded in the late 50s called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC for short. SNCC was created by a lady named Ella Baker. She was an activist who had been the director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She saw a need for younger civil rights activists to have their own organisation and helped create SNCC, who were made up of college students dedicated to the movement. They organised rallies, demonstrations and encouraged blacks to register to vote. One of the group's prominent leaders was none other than the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. SNCC then began recruiting more and more young members and in the town of Americus, the movement was led by three local black leaders who organised 
mass meetings, marches and sit-ins. But the police would beat the protesters, order dogs to attack them or blast them with fire hoses. But they were instructed never to fight back. Quote, we were very peaceful. We had been trained. We had to take an oath of non-violence. The cops were the ones that had sticks and dogs and billy clubs. We were trained how to protect ourselves if we were hit over the head. Go to the ground. Sometimes we would kneel and pray. We knew at some point we would be taken to jail. And here is what one young girl in high school said, quote, Some friends had been to a mass meeting and invited me to go. I listened and was immediately enthralled. They were talking about African-American people and how we were not free. I understood and related and wanted to be a part of it. We were marching at least once a week and every weekend. A lot of us were sneaking out of the house and doing it against our parents' wishes. But it was a dilemma for the black activists, as so many were employed by whites, so they risked losing their jobs. A lot of older people were scared of losing their jobs. 50% of employment was in a white person's kitchen or restaurant. White people would tell them, you'd better not march, so many didn't take part in the activism. However, many young people were prepared to take the risk, even though it may not be good for their families. A young girl named Lulu said, quote, We all wanted to change. We wanted better schools. We wanted better jobs. We wanted to be treated equally. It was a matter of standing up for what we knew was right, and they weren't afraid of being put in jail. In fact, they welcomed it to show the authorities that the movement wasn't backing down. Large groups had the express aim to be arrested and crammed into jails, and the young also took part in this effective strategy. While demonstrations were happening all over the US, Americus came to be known for the high number of young people who were arrested in the summer of 1963. Lorena was a young girl at the time and recalls, quote, That summer, little by little, the population of young people was populating the jails. As older teenagers were arrested, younger and younger children took their place. It was then on a day in July 1963 that a demonstration was jointly organised by SNCC and the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, which was a civil rights organisation that had been founded some 60 years earlier in 1909. Then a group of about 200 activists gathered together with plans to march through the streets of Americus. The plan was for half of the demonstrators to head to the segregated Martin Theatre, while the rest were to veer right toward the white waiting room of the bus station. However, they found themselves confronted with a large crowd of white people, including the police and members of the KKK. They were carrying fire hoses, billy clubs and electric cattle prods, and there were also police dogs. But the demonstrators knew how they would respond. There would be no violence or fighting back. The America's police chief was there to confront the protesters, and he was well known for his racism, routinely calling blacks niggers, 
and was feared by the blacks of the town. Even Martin Luther King described him as the meanest man in the world. Dr. King had once been arrested and held in jail by the police chief, where he got to see for himself the chief's level of racism. So on that day of the march, the police chief was one of those who confronted the demonstrators, and it didn't take long for the crowds to engulf the activists. Fire hoses began to blast water at them, and the police began hitting them with clubs. Some soon had blood pouring down their faces, and some were pinned to the ground by the police. Then they began throwing many of the children into police wagons, separating the boys and the girls in different wagons. But of course, the kids weren't surprised. Quote, I wasn't really surprised I got arrested. Most kids were getting arrested. I wasn't really scared. Of course, the jail cells were crowded with many children, and it was very hot and uncomfortable. Then one morning, some of the girls were put into a police wagon and taken somewhere else. Quote, they loaded us out like animals. We couldn't see out. We didn't know where we were going. The girls ranged in age from 11 to 16, and they ended up about 25 miles away in a place called Leesburg. After being taken out of the paddy wagon, they were led into a white concrete building. They didn't know it at the time, but the building was called the Leesburg Stockade, which had been a jail during the civil rights era. It had initially been built to keep cattle in. There were about 30 girls and they were locked inside and told to be quiet or they would be killed. The girls noticed a number of guards who had shotguns. The room measured about 12 metres by 5 metres and the girls noticed immediately how filthy it was. Quote, the floor was covered with a thin layer of sandy dirt and dust. The walls were damp and felt slimy. The paint on the ceiling was peeling off. They also noticed there was all sorts of rubbish strewn through the room and although there were windows, the glass had been shattered in every one of them and they also had bars, which really made it look like a prison. There were also old rusty iron beds with mattresses. Quote, the mattresses were sandy and gritty and so dirty and some were so ripped the cotton was coming out of them. It looked as though life hadn't been in there for 10 years. It was so dusty. The walls were dirty. Everything was absolutely dirty. They found one shower, but it too was filthy. The shower head was old and barely hanging onto the wall. There was also only one toilet, but it didn't work properly. So it didn't take long for the waste to fill to the brim and overflow onto the floor. When they couldn't use the toilet anymore, they resorted to squatting over the shower drain to relieve themselves, so it didn't take long for the shower also to be littered with urine and feces. They even used some of the dirtier mattresses to relieve themselves on, but some girls just hung on, not wanting to even go to the toilet, which of course led to constipation. The shower soon became littered with feminine hygiene napkins that they made themselves by cutting strips from their dresses. Quote, we asked for soap but was refused. There was no hot water in the cell. We used a nasty wash basin to wash our face and hands. The ventilation was poor and the place was hot all the time. Some of the mattresses were so bad 
some of the girls were afraid to sleep on them, so we picked out the ones we thought we could sleep on and pushed them to the front. We put the bad ones, which had bugs crawling over them, to the back. The stench of unwashed bodies and excrement made the conditions unbearable. Quote, the stench was awful. You had to go to the windows to get fresh air. Being summer, the temperature was about 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius, so the air outside didn't offer much relief. So what did the girls eat? In the first two days they were there, they weren't given anything to eat. Then they were only given hamburgers once a day, which were cold, greasy and not properly cooked. But the cardboard cartons the burgers came in were able to be used as toilet paper and sanitary napkins. As it was summer, it was so hot in the room that the girls weren't given anything to drink. Instead, there was a hose which was connected to a faucet, and that's how the cattle had been washed in the past. That hose became their drinking water, and they could also drink from the dripping shower, but the water was hot, cloudy, and tasted rusty. But despite the appalling conditions, the girls kept their spirits up by praying and singing freedom songs. They were very pleased with what they had done, demonstrating, getting arrested, and enduring time in jail. They had taken a stand, which meant a great deal to them. One girl said, quote, We were willing to die. That took the fear out of you. I think everyone who went to jail was willing to die. But the girls were soon fed up with the conditions, the lack of food and water, unsanitary conditions, and they decided to make a stand by setting some of the mattresses on fire. Quote, we burned them to get rid of the feces and the awful odour. We felt this was the only way to get rid of them. The smoke also helped to get rid of the mosquitoes. But the girls were swiftly reprimanded for their actions. Quote, the very next day the guards took away our remaining beds, so then we started sleeping on the floor with no mattresses, no beds, no blankets, no sheet, no nothing. You lay down for a while and soon it starts hurting you. You sit up for a while and it starts hurting you, so you have to walk around for a while. Even if the girls managed to get some sleep, they would wake up with backaches. And the guards also turned off the lights at night. Quote, Before they dragged out the beds, we had lights, but after that, we had no more. And the other issue that they had were the bugs, which came in through the broken windows. Flies, gnats, mosquitoes, cockroaches, which of course were attracted to the waste. One of the girls, Carolyn, got very sick while in the stockade and was taken back to the city jail in Americas. While there, the guards had been watching TV and Carolyn could listen from her cell. She didn't know it, but a momentous event was taking place in Washington, D.C. A group of civil rights activists had marched to the Washington Monument. She heard the now iconic speech given by Martin Luther King Jr., the I Have a Dream speech. How amazing that she was there to hear that when it first happened. Carolyn spent the night in the jail but was then sent back to the Leesburg stockade the next morning. And she was the lucky one, as most of the girls' health issues were simply ignored. Quote, some girls got athlete's foot. One girl had a weak heart and got pains in her chest. Another girl had sinus trouble and had an asthma attack. 
all these girls asked for a doctor, but the Leesburg stockade didn't have one. One late evening, two of the girls were sick. One girl had a bad heart and the other had a bad appendix. One girl was trembling so bad and the other was crying and asking for help. So we called for the guard, but he ignored us for about 15 minutes and he said he couldn't come again until the other guard returned. We called again and after several hours, another man came. He said there was nothing wrong with the girls and he said, if they aren't dead by morning, we'll come and look at them again. But luckily, they felt better by the morning. The girls developed ear infections, boils, high fevers, head lice, and one girl even found out she was pregnant after not getting her period and throwing up all the time. After weeks and weeks living in these appalling conditions, the girls decided to try to escape. One of the girls called out to the guards, making up a story, and when he came and opened the door, they all ran out. But the guard chased after them, firing his gun. They made it into a thick wooded area, but they soon got lost, having no idea where they were, and they realised that they were never going to be able to find their way home. So they returned to the stockade, dejected. The girls wondered how no one had been able to find them, and every day they hoped it would be their last. Over the weeks, more girls joined them. Some only stayed for a short time, just a day or so, while others stayed longer. Many of the girls didn't know one another, but of course, their mutual imprisonment made for strong bonds to develop. But while they were in despair, what they didn't know was that help was on its way. About a year before the girls were imprisoned, a 21-year-old college student named Danny Lyon had seen a photograph in the student newspaper. It was a photo of a white man being hit by police because he had taken part in a civil rights protest march. This photo led Danny to join the movement, and he also joined SNCC, where he was given the job of taking photographs to publicise the organisation's activities. The location of the girls' captivity hadn't been known, but there were rumours, and Danny was then asked by SNCC to go and see if the rumours were true. He managed to find a teenager who knew about the stockade, and he offered to take him there. So Danny hid himself in the car, covered with a blanket. When they arrived, the boy distracted the guard, while Danny got out of the car and looked in through one of the windows, and there they were. He whispered to them who he was, and that he wanted to take photos to show the world what had happened to them. Danny recalls here, quote, Beautiful teenage girls came up to the window. They wanted to know my name and where I was from. It was a kind of surprise social event, and they reached out to shake hands with me through the bars and broken glass of the window. So he quickly began snapping photos before being detected, and when you see the photos, it really strikes you how happy the girls were to see him. They were smiling throughout in good spirits, despite what they had been through. They knew this was their chance for the world to see the results of discrimination and segregation. After clicking away for about 15 minutes, they left and Danny was keen to process the photos. After the photos were made public, the girls were miraculously released. A coincidence or not? After being released, 
the girls were taken to the courthouse in Americus, and it was there that they were told that their families would be charged $2 as a boarding fee for each day they were held in the stockade. Unbelievable, right? So the girls were finally home and life returned to normal. But for the girls, their normal was that they continued to be segregated at theatres, shops, restaurants. None of that had changed in the weeks and months that the girls had been held. They all continued to attend marches and demonstrations, as one girl said, quote, It wasn't over. We didn't arrive yet. There were still mass meetings. I didn't stop. I knew what I wanted. I wanted us to go to the white schools and have better equipment. I went for the education. I wanted for a better future. I didn't want my kids to go through what I went through. Four of the girls were then chosen as part of an integration program and went to the white high school in Americas. But they faced being spat at and being deliberately shunned. The teachers called them the smart niggers. Three of the girls eventually left and went back to their black school, but one girl refused to be defeated and remained. She eventually graduated and went to university. She said, quote, I did not give up and I did not lose my focus and I did not cave in. It was very much a defining period of my life. It gave me the greatest confidence. If I could withstand that, I could withstand anything. And here now is that lady, Tina Fletcher, speaking about being one of the four students who went to the white school. After I got out of jail and spent my ninth year in the black school, I decided, oh, the white school is just two blocks from my house. I'm going to go over there and I'm a nice little lady and they're going to learn to love me and all this. Oh, man, was I wrong? The first day that we drove on that campus and there were uh, four of us, I think every white person in that town in America's Georgia came to school that morning. As far as your eyes could see, was just people. I'd never been so scared in all my life. Not even the day that I was marched and locked up. Bricks hit that car. I mean, it, they were just pounding it. I thought they were going to turn the car over. They were rocking it. We had to spit out, go around, go to the principal's office, and wait till they clear the campus before we could go to class. We had to go to school, class, change class five minutes before or five minutes after all the white kids. We were pounded, spat on, talked at, you know, hollered at. Because I kind of liked the name that they gave me. Not really, but I'm going to tell you. I got my lesson at the black school. I was an A student. When I got to the white school, I stood my butt off. I got my lesson and I made the beta club. So they look at me and go, that go that smart nigga. <laughs> I said, okay, if that's what you want to call me. In the years that followed, each of the girls' lives took different paths. Some became successful educators, business people, etc. One of the stockade girls even went on to be a teacher and ultimately principal of America's high school, being the first black principal in the 115-year history of the school. How amazing. All in all, it is believed that a total of 33 girls had been detained in the stockade building. While some stayed for a day or a week, the longest stay had been for two months. Many of the girls have returned back to the stockade over the years. 
taking their own children and grandchildren. But for some, the memories were too difficult and they never spoke about what happened ever again. The story about the girls came from a book called Locked Up for Freedom, written by the author Heather E. Swartz. And here is what she had to say, quote, All the girls who spent time at the Leesburg Stockade deserve recognition for their courage. Their story is proof that young people can take positive action to make real and lasting change. The girls at Leesburg Stockade have earned their place in history. So, did the activism of the early 60s result in any change? Well, it was in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was put into law, which meant that segregation was outlawed in public places and employers could not discriminate according to race. The Voting Rights Act a year later allowed blacks to vote with poll taxes and literacy tests being abolished. But despite the successes of the civil rights movement, we know that discrimination and segregation still exists in the US today, and many schools only remain partially integrated. And of course, we know that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated about four years after the stockade incident. The photographer Danny Lyon, who had brought the girl's story out into the public, went on to have a distinguished career as a photographer, achieving various awards and accolades. His photography was a special style called photographic new journalism, which had developed in the 1960s and 70s. It involved journalists immersing themselves and participating in the stories as they reported and wrote them. So it contrasted traditional journalism, where the journalist was not present during the events reported on. You can find many videos of the girls, now elderly women, telling their stories of the stockade, and Danny can also be seen in a number of them. He has continued to keep in contact with the girls and keeps spreading their story. Although it is one chapter in the civil rights movement that only few Americans know about. In their later years, the girls, now women, joined together to file a lawsuit in protest over what they had endured. Their lawyer stated, quote, I think they deserve some type of reparation for this tragedy. These women suffered enormously and most Americans don't even know it happened. They feel they are owed an apology or some form of legal redress, but it is unclear if anything will happen as the five-year statute of limitations has passed. However, I read that their attorney has said that if there is enough of a community outcry, then legal recourse can still occur. But I haven't been able to find if anything has resulted from the lawsuit. For me, probably one of the most haunting aspects of this story is the fact that while the girls were in the stockade, Martin Luther King was giving that unforgettable speech, I have a dream. Doesn't that give you the chills? And here is Tina again talking about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King is one of my idols, of course, as he is for many people. But it was necessary for all of us foot soldiers that were doing stuff on the ground to help make the dream come alive. 
if he didn't have foot soldiers that was working in the vineyard, down on the bottom level, none of what you see today would be possible. And there is a video of some of the girls going back to visit the stockade just a few years ago. And at the end are the following words, quote, As the daylight slants lower over the stockade, the women, bound by shared experience, spontaneously come together in a circle and bow their heads to pray. Afterward, they break apart, each one lost in her own separate memory. You know that in the pantheon of fighters who struggled and sacrificed for freedom's cause, the girls of America's Georgia deserve their rightful place in history too. And here are now some final words from some of those brave young girls. It has to be a fairy tale. Surely this is not real. But when you actually live it, and just today a young lady say, if you guys weren't alive to tell the story, I wouldn't believe the story. If I'm going to die day by day, then I might as well just die one day. So I guess what we decided was every day there, we was dying day by day. So we were going to go out and die one day and get it over with so that somebody else could live. We are like the unknown soldiers without a name on their tombstone. Nobody knows about it. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Sister Act. The nun was accused of embezzling money, so was she guilty? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote from Martin Luther King himself. Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Bye for now. And remember to be a good apple.